Hello and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. It's good to be back with you all as we continue in this series in Numbers entitled A Table in the Wilderness. Lately, I've been reading books aloud with our kids. They were surprisingly engrossed in Watership Down by Richard Adams. We started Lord of the Rings, but got kind of bogged down. The book we read most recently is Ender's Game, which I'd recommend to anyone looking for a good story. It's about a young boy named Ender who was taken from Earth to a place called the Battle School, where brilliant children are trained to become commanders of the interstellar fleet. The school revolves around mock battles conducted in a room without gravity, and one of Ender's earliest secrets to success is how he is able to quickly change his sense of orientation. Most boys who enter the room insist on keeping the same sense of up and down they had earlier, but Ender is able to easily flip this in his mind, to see boys not as standing on the floor, but dangling from their feet off the ceiling. He realizes the best way to orient himself during mock battles is with his feet pointing towards the enemy, so that his body presents the smallest target possible. And this is how he trains the boys he ultimately leads, to think of the enemy gate as down. I think we can all agree that 2020 has been an extremely disorienting year. The challenges and the unknowns just keep coming. And the question I want to ask you right now is, what are you orienting yourself around? What keeps you grounded and centered? From what place do you see and interpret the world? What is your primary point of reference? We all have a primary orientation, something like the enemy's door in the battle room, something we look for first when we enter a place of instability, and something which then determines the perspective from which we see the events happening in the room. If you don't know what your primary orientation is, there's nothing that reveals it like periods of instability and stress. And the book of Numbers is about just such a time. It tells the story of the Israelites as they wander through the wilderness. Can you imagine continually packing and repacking your tent, doing the same things every day, stuck in a place you never imagined yourself to be? Well, we can all probably picture that better than usual these days. Maybe living in numbers felt like being stuck in a pandemic, except for 40 years. But the wilderness can be any period or area in our lives where we feel frustrated, lonely, dry, or confused, where we're faced with stress and bad news, where our ultimate longings feel unmet. Now, last week, David looked at a similar passage in Numbers 14 and examined the nature of God's anger and what it means to intercede for others. In our passage this week from Numbers 16, something eerily similar happens. The people complain and there are results. Wilderness experiences often lead to a certain amount of whining. As Dean puts it, all of our impatience and fear get pushed through a very small opening and whining is the result. But in today's story, we get a particularly insightful glimpse into what our complaints reveal about our underlying orientation. And this is what I want to focus on. We're going to begin by contrasting the words and actions of Korah and his men with those of Moses and Aaron. Then we'll spend some time asking what we can learn from Moses about how to have the right kind of orientation. Lastly, we'll finish by looking at how God reveals himself to us in this passage and invites us to his table. Firstly, what kind of contrast do we see here between Korah and his men and Moses and Aaron? Let's read the first few verses of Numbers chapter 16. 
Now Korah, the son of Itzhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Now, who are these people? The Levites were one of the tribes of Israel. Moses, Aaron, and Korah are all Levites. Now, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Only the descendants of Aaron could be priests and touch the holy things in the tabernacle. The rest of the Levites helped out with the tabernacle in other ways, but they couldn't touch or even look at the holy things directly or they would die. Now Korah came from a favored clan of the Levites. His clan transported the tabernacle furnishings after they had been covered in cloths by the priests. They were the first clan after the priests to go into the tabernacle each time the Israelites moved. But despite the privilege he already had, Korah wanted more power. He wanted to supplant Aaron and be a priest himself. Meanwhile, Dathan, Abiram, and On wanted to supplant Moses as a political leader. They probably felt they had some right to this as descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, even though we know from Genesis 49 that Reuben forfeited his birthright due to sleeping with his father's concubine. These men chose 250 others. It's interesting, huh, how people who complain like company. And they openly rebel against Moses and Aaron. What is it they say? Verse 3, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Then later in verse 12, You have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. You've made yourself a prince over us. You have not brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Now, what is it they're doing? First of all, they are taking the words of God and twisting them to meet their own ends. In Exodus 19.6, God does say, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the first part of that sentence says, If you will indeed obey my voice. At the end of the previous chapter in Numbers, God does say, You shall be holy to your God. But right before that, he says, You shall remember and do all my commandments. Korah takes the parts of God's words that serve his purposes and leaves out the parts that don't. But holiness is not a commodity to be cashed in on at our convenience. In Hebrew, the word for holy means set apart, separate. God is holy because he is utterly unlike any other being. And he calls his people to be set apart exclusively for him, to belong to him, to delight in him, and therefore to obey his commandments, which included rules of priestly service. Korah missed the whole point of what holiness is about. His complaint is ultimately not against Aaron, but against God himself, as Moses points out in verse 11. Secondly, these men not only twist God's words, but they twist history. Pretty much every single word they utter is a misrepresentation of events. Uh, Egypt was not exactly flowing with milk and honey. Moses didn't even want the job. He didn't bring them into the wilderness on purpose. They brought that on themselves through their rebellion just two chapters ago. The crazy thing is, they're somehow switching Egypt and the promised land in their minds, right? Egypt becomes a place with milk and honey, and their life now becomes a place where they are oppressed to death under a ruler. 
This seems ridiculous, but the truth is, it's so easy to do all these things when we're living in the wilderness. It's easy to demand or take what we want from God's word, rather than listen to and study it for what God may be wanting us to hear. It's easy to blame others instead of taking responsibility ourselves, especially when we're burned out or frustrated. It's easy to compare what we lack now with what we used to have or what others have instead of us. I have to confess that when I found out my sisters got to take their kids into libraries where they live, it was hard not to feel a bit begrudging of the restrictions we're still living under here. It's hard not to demand what we want on our own timetables. Ultimately, at the heart of whining is a self-oriented perspective. We see everything in terms of how it relates to what we want, when we want it, and how we want it, until it twists everything we hear and say and think. Hey, where's my fields and vineyards? And that orientation stands in direct contrast to Moses and Aaron's. The first thing we read about Moses' response to all of this is in verse 4. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his. Look at their posture. In verse 2, Korah and company rose up. Here in verse 4, Moses fell on his face. Korah's posture is one of entitlement, pride, and self-exaltation. Moses' posture is one of submission, humility, and meekness. In the Bible, Moses falls on his face four separate times, all of them in the book of Numbers. And while we don't really know what's going on in his head, we do see that in Scripture, falling on one's face is often a response to being in the presence of God. Abram fell on his face in Genesis 17 when God spoke to him. The wise men fell on their faces in Matthew 2 when they saw Jesus. The angels and elders and creatures in the throne room of God even now fall on their faces in worship, as we read about in Revelation 7. The secret to not complaining, the secret to living with humility and meekness in the wilderness is to fall on our faces before God, to orient ourselves to Him. In verse 22, Moses and Aaron use a very interesting name for God. Just after they both fall on their faces, they say, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh. This title is only found here and in Numbers 27, 16. It emphasizes that God alone is creator, giver, sustainer, sovereign over all flesh, over all our days, even in the wilderness. I found it helpful in the past few months to read through some of the liturgies in the book Every Moment Holy by Douglas McKelvey. One of them, entitled A Liturgy for the Death of a Dream, has these lines in it. You are the sovereign of my sorrow. You apprehend a wider sweep with wiser eyes than mine. My history bears the fingerprints of grace. Because Moses and Aaron orient themselves around the God of the spirits of all flesh, their perspective is radically different than Korah's. Instead of seeing what they don't have, they see the value of what they always do have, God's presence. In verse 10, Moses tells Korah, God has brought you near him. Instead of resenting or being jealous of others, Moses and Aaron continue to intercede for them in love, as we'll see. The thing is, we will always tend to revert back to a self-oriented perspective, to let our own opinions, feelings, and desires rule how we feel about what is or isn't happening. How do we go from seeing the world like Korah to seeing the world like Moses? 
Well, there's a lot here, but let me just mention two things Moses does that teaches us how to move towards a God-oriented perspective. First, Moses restrains his words. Korah and his men complain twice, and you can see Moses' emotions building each time. The first time, Korah makes a specific complaint and Moses replies. The second time, Dathan and Abiram make a much broader complaint, and this time, verse 15 says, And Moses was very angry. The word in Hebrew literally means he was furious, like a hot kindled fire. But now, look at the very next words. Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Moses does not talk back to Dathan and Abiram. He keeps his mouth shut. (laughs) Sometimes when we feel hot anger rising up in us, when we feel the urge to complain, we just have to keep our mouths shut. I really can't think of the last time I regretted keeping my mouth shut in that kind of moment, whereas I've often regretted not doing that. That doesn't mean we don't respond. In fact, keeping our mouth shut in the moment helps us to respond rather than just react. Moses doesn't suppress his anger. He brings it to God. There's a difference between venting and lamenting, between sinful complaint and needful grieving. And that difference is simply whether we are doing it for ourselves or in God's presence. Venting and whining are always oriented around ourselves. We vent to make ourselves feel better. We complain because we're not getting what we want. But lament is when we bring our frustrations, anger, and sadness into the purview of our relationship with God. Over half the Psalms are laments, and those laments are prayers. They are struggles talked out to God within the context of a relationship with Him. In fact, it takes a certain level of security and belief in a relationship to be able to do that. God always welcomes our laments. He invites us to express our longings to him. Moses restrains his words before other people, but brings his struggles to God. Secondly, we see in this chapter that Moses practices the presence of God. It's kind of interesting to step back and ask, what kind of reality are people in this passage living in? Korah lives in the reality of man. He's introduced with his genealogical credentials. He's collaborating with politically powerful upstarts. He's assembled the most well-known men around him. It's like on one side, you have Korah and 250 A-listers. And on the other side, you have Moses, one other guy who happens to be his brother, and God. But Moses doesn't seem to mind this. His biggest reality is God. He's there because God has placed him there. He relies on God alone to justify him. All of his credentials, resources, and vision lie in God. To Moses, the presence of God is more real than anything else in the wilderness. Have you ever met someone like that before? Someone who operates in the reality of God's presence and purpose all the time? Let me tell you, it's not an accident. That person has probably learned how to practice the presence of God. How does Moses do that in this chapter? He prays constantly. He is in conversation with God throughout the story. He not only talks, but listens to what God has to say. God's word is continually on his mind. He practices community. In verse 22, Moses goes to God, not alone, but with Aaron. And he works with Aaron throughout everything that happens. Friends, we have to practice the presence of God. There isn't really any shortcut. 
you will start to live in the reality that you present to yourself. And if you never fully and regularly give God your undivided attention, if you don't practice carrying his presence into the moments of your day, if you don't attend to community, then you will find it a struggle to orient yourself to God. And by default, you will orient your life more and more around yourself, around the culture and attitudes and emotions of others around you. In his book, Discernment, Henry Nowen shares how he spends at least one hour in prayer and meditation every morning. Without it, he writes, my life loses its coherence and I start experiencing my days as a series of random incidents and accidents rather than divine appointments and encounters. No one admits he doesn't always have a particularly close feeling with God during these times, but he writes, The way I become aware of God's presence is in that remarkable desire to return to that quiet place and be there without any real satisfaction. And I notice, maybe only retrospectively, that my days and weeks are different when they are held together by these regular and, quote, useless times. God is greater than my senses, greater than my thoughts, greater than my heart. I do believe that God touches me in places that are hidden even to myself. Brother Lawrence, in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, writes of God, One need not cry out very loudly, He is nearer to us than we think. We've seen that Korah and company complain and whine because they go through the wilderness primarily oriented around themselves, whereas Moses and Aaron are oriented around God. We've seen that Moses does this by being careful about what he says and through practicing the presence of God. But we'd be missing the whole point of this passage, I think, if we didn't see that God reveals himself to us here as one who is, as Brother Lawrence writes, nearer than we think. As we end, let's look at how God does reveal himself in the rest of this chapter. We see first a God who is near with just judgment. In response to their very public rebellion, Moses organizes a public showdown. Korah and his 250 men bring censers before the tabernacle. Now, in Numbers 13.32, the Israelites had complained that they didn't want to go into the promised land because it would be, quote, a land that devours its inhabitants, close quote. In an eerie echo of those words, God makes the land under the feet of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram open up its mouth and swallow them whole. It's a judgment that literally fits their complaints. And the 250 men who offer unauthorized fire are consumed with fire from God. In Leviticus 10.2, Aaron's two sons offer unauthorized fire and are consumed by fire in the exact same manner. God judges the men who wanted to be priests exactly as priests are judged when they offer unauthorized fire. God takes our whining seriously. At heart, when we complain, we are complaining against God. We are saying that we don't believe in God's sovereignty, that what he's doing is not good enough. We are distrusting his love and claiming that we know better than he does what is best. But God is near to his people, not only in just judgment, but in sacrificial love. Here, in the midst of seemingly pointless wilderness wanderings, is one of the most remarkable messianic images in the entire Bible. 
it happens the next day, when the people begin to grumble yet again against Moses and Aaron. This time, God brings down a plague that starts killing the congregation. Moses says to Aaron in verse 43, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Verse 47, So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700. Can you picture this scene? A plague, which works far more quickly than the coronavirus, is sweeping through thousands and thousands of people. And Aaron, who is about 100 years old by this time, runs out holding holding holy fire on his censer. And right where he is, there is a line between the dead and the living. There could be no better picture of what Christ does for us. Aaron loves his own people, even though they rejected and spoke out against him, just as Christ loves us despite our complaints against him. Priests were not to touch the dead, but Aaron exposes himself to uncleanliness and the threat of death, just as Christ was willing to die for us. Aaron offers holy fire that is acceptable to God, just as Christ gave himself as a holy and acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Aaron acts as an appointed priest who is prepared for his work. He didn't have to go change into his robes. He was ready. Hebrews 14 says that Christ is our great high priest. Aaron interposed himself between death and life. Jesus says in John 5, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And the Trinity is here too. David talked last week about the parable of the prodigal son. Do you see in Aaron's running a picture of God the Father running out to embrace the one he loves? Do you see in the fire of the censer the flame of the Holy Spirit who will one day visit believers at Pentecost? God is here, here in this picture of Aaron running out to stand between the living and their certain death. In the end, we can't will our way out of complaining. We can't fix ourselves. The gospel is the truth that we need intercession and that God loves us so much that he himself provides that for us. The gospel is not advice we choose to follow or not while still pursuing our own agendas. It is news that we receive. It is a revelation that we respond to. It is the table we are invited to, even in or especially in the wilderness. In John 6, the crowd asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus' response is simple. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's not about figuring out how we can best manage or work our way through something. It's fundamentally about believing, believing in the person of Jesus, believing that we can have purpose and strength in the wilderness, not because of who we are or what we think we need, but because of who he is and what he can provide for us. Isaiah 40 says, Why do you complain, Jacob? You can put your own name there. Why do you complain, Esther? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. In one of the last scenes of the book, Ender, who is now commanding the fleet, finds himself facing a battle of impossible odds. 
His heart sinks, and he's at a complete loss as to what to do. But he finds himself whispering into his mouthpiece to his squadron leaders an old phrase. Remember, the enemy gate is down, and suddenly they know what to do. As we face these disorienting and difficult times, as we struggle through wilderness areas in our lives, may this whisper come to our ears. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. May we orient ourselves more and more around that God. Rather than complaining, May we be people who practice the presence of God and see his vision and purposes right where he has put us. Amen. Amen.